Now, our Father, we thank you for your word this morning, that it is like food. You call it milk, meat, honey, bread. It sustains us as believers, and it is the very instrument you promised that you would use to bring people into the kingdom of God. And in it, there is much joy in obeying it, but there's much warning as well. For you said a day will come when the Lord Jesus will be revealed with his mighty angels in flaming fire, and he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And you warn that those will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Thank you that we can know more than just your existence But you said, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom thou hast sent. Thank you that you offer us new life and intimate friendship with yourself. And so you told us that those who boast should boast in this, that they know you. Now, I know, Father, there's many who are listening to me today, some who are live streaming in other states, even foreign countries like we have most weeks, some who have never met you. They know about you, but they don't know you. Help by your spirit today to be a turning point in their lives. Now, I know that the spirit is the one who opens up blind eyes, so we are so dependent on his ministry today to help those who have confessed Jesus to grow deeper and stronger and those who have not yet made that decision. Give them the grace today that today would be the day where they would have a spiritual birthday. Father, help me, fill me, and anoint me, and use me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Take God's word with you this morning. Turn to John chapter 3, John 3. Our visitors may be interested to know that we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And most recently, we are looking on the subject of heaven, and we will pick up there next time. What does the Bible really teach and say about heaven? But today, the subject is understanding the new birth, because without it, the Bible is clear, you cannot go to heaven. John 3.16 is one of the greatest verses, the most memorized verse in, I suppose, all of the Bible. But unfortunately, many Christian people don't know the context of John 3.16. So this sermon is for everyone within the sound of my voice. If you've never come to know the Lord personally, let God speak to you today. Don't resist His Spirit. But also, if you know Christ, know the context of this verse, because it will equip you to share the good news with people who have never found Jesus. Many of you have heard of George Whitfield, the great 18th century evangelist, kind of the Billy Graham of his day. And uh, he once wrote Benjamin Franklin, a well-known, of course, uh, statesman, inventor. And Franklin was known not just as an inventor and a statesman, but he was also known for his correspondence. When people wrote him, famous or just the average Joe, so to speak, it didn't make any difference to him. He wrote them back. And one day, Whitfield, knowing that he would respond to his letter, wrote Ben Franklin, and he penned these words. Let me read them to you. I find that you grow more and more famous in the learned world as you have made such progress in investigating the mysteries of electricity. I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. 
it is a most important and interesting study, and when mastered, will richly repay you for your, pain, for your pains. Being born again is so important. It is the most important thing that can ever happen to you in your human history. And if you don't believe that, I hope to be able to show you that this morning from Scripture. Being born again will change your life. You will come to experience God's love in a powerful way that you never dreamed possible because when the new birth happens, the love of God is poured out in our hearts, the Scripture says. And so let's begin by reading our passage. We're going to focus on verses 11 to 21, but to give us a little bit of a running start, I want to begin reading in verse 7. If you don't have a Bible, the Scripture is on the screens in front of you. Follow along now. It says, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God." Now, I hope you remember the occasion for these words. The Lord Jesus has already performed His first miracle in a place called Cana in the Galilee region. That's recorded in the first half of chapter 2. And from there, He spent a few days in Capernaum. He was rejected in His hometown of Nazareth, and so He had a new hometown. The Bible calls it His hometown, a place called Capernaum which became the headquarters for his ministry for the next three years. And more miracles are recorded in that particular place than any other place in all of the Bible. After he'd spent some time in Capernaum, he made his way down to Jerusalem where he cleansed the temple. And while in Jerusalem on one particular Passover, the last few verses of chapter 2 tells us that Jesus did many other signs or miracles you could render it. There was a man who was there. He was rich. He was religious. He was respected. He's called in our passage this morning a ruler of the Jews. And he was obviously watching Jesus by the question that he asked. His name, of course, is Nicodemus. And like most Jews who knew their Bibles, he would have been looking for the restoration and the inauguration of the kingdom of God that the Scriptures promised in the Old Testament. Perhaps this one who had been doing these miracles 
And this one who with such incredible authority cleansed the temple, he thought maybe he is indeed the promised Messiah. And the historical record of Nicodemus in this encounter with Jesus, and by the way, it's found only in John's gospel, it reveals some of the world's greatest truths, without a doubt the world's greatest texts, and also one of the world's greatest tests. And if you can understand and believe this portion of Scripture this morning, it will change your life. You'll know how to be born again. And if you already are, this text will help you explain it because there's nothing more important in this whole world that you could share with another person than how they could come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So there in your outline, understanding spiritual birth. The first point is the world's greatest truths. This discussion with Nicodemus reveals some of the world's greatest truths. Now, he comes to him one night, and he wants to talk to Jesus about miracles. And Jesus speaks to him about the second birth, but in one sense, he doesn't change the subject because the second birth is really the greatest miracle that you can ever know in your human experience. And so Jesus explains to Nicodemus about a miraculous birth that comes from above, which, is, by the way, is the purpose for which John writes his book. He said, these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and in believing you might find life in his name. And so John wants all of us reading this gospel to know the miracle of the second birth. And so by design, he covers this encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Notice he comes to him and he says, Rabbi, we know you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs or these miracles that you do unless God is with him. And with those words, Jesus begins this dialogue with Nicodemus on the subject of the second birth. And the dialogue runs really all the way through verse 10, where three times he tells Nicodemus, if you want to see, that is, with spiritual eyes, we might say, understand the kingdom of God. And if you want to enter the kingdom of God, he uses two words, see and enter, then you must be born again. Now, on occasion, people have said to me, well, you're kind of narrow for saying you must be a born-again Christian to go to heaven. And I said, look, that's not my thought. That's Christ's words. He said you must be born again. And if he's God in human flesh, he can be as narrow as he wants to be because everything he says is absolute truth. So Nicodemus, like us, need a birth from above if we're going to see the inside of God's kingdom. Truly, truly, I say to you, look at verse 3, follow the flow of thought into our text. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? I don't understand, Jesus. How can a man be born two times? Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let me explain to you, Nicodemus. If you want to go to heaven, you must be born physically. That's your water birth. The water breaks and you come into this world. But you must also be born spiritually. By the way, this verse has nothing to do with baptism. Some have read baptism in this to defend that baptism somehow washes away sin. We know that's not true because the Bible does not teach it. The Bible says, first believe, get saved first, and then after you're saved, 
get baptized. Now, man reversed it. Around the third century, we started baptizing little infants, later asking them to believe. It's just the opposite in the Bible. Believe, Jesus said, and then be baptized. But baptism doesn't save you. The gospel saves you. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. I was speaking to a Christian school in Atlanta on Friday, and I asked the students present, I said, you need to know what the gospel is because the gospel is the power of God to save you, and you need to be able to say in three words what the gospel is, death, burial, and resurrection. Paul said, I delivered to you as of first importance the gospel, that Christ died, was buried, and raised, and that baptism has nothing to do with the gospel, Paul will tell the Corinthians, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He separates baptism from the gospel. Baptism is important after you're saved. It has nothing to do with how you get saved. And so Jesus further explains it. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's your first birth. That's your physical birth. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That's your second birth, when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. Because you see, Nicodemus, flesh gives only birth to flesh, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spirit. Physical birth is one thing. Spiritual birth is quite another. So he says in verse 7, for this reason, do not be amazed. Don't be shocked. Thorazo, don't be blown away. It's a very powerful word that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus teaches that you are in one of two kingdoms today. You are either in the kingdom of the forgiven or you are in the kingdom of the condemned. He will highlight that truth in this passage. You are either in the kingdom of light or you are in the kingdom of darkness. You are either in the kingdom of God or you are in the kingdom of Satan. You are in the kingdom that will someday bring you to heaven or you are in the kingdom that will, without change, in the end, bring you to hell. And so Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand because he's compassionate. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He wants him to know how he can enter into God's kingdom. But getting there the way Nicodemus thought would be like taking a fish that you like, you feed, you enjoy him, and you want to make him your pet fish, so you take him out of the aquarium and you carry him around in a box. Well, he won't be your pet for very long. And Jesus wants Nicodemus to know that you cannot breathe through the gills of Judaism, through religiosity, through a righteousness that you earn and achieve and enter God's kingdom. You need to be radically changed, just like a fish would have to be radically changed to be able to live outside of water. You need to be radically changed. You need to be born from above if you're ever going to enter God's kingdom. Well, notice Nicodemus does not get the message. He says in verse 9, how can these things be? Please tell me, Rabbi, how does the second birth take place? Because I don't know. Now, he's moved from where he was. His first question was, how can a man be born twice? And it concerned more the possibility of the second birth. But in this question, it concerns the process of the second birth. Jesus answered, verse 10, and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? It's articular in most Bibles. It doesn't say a teacher. The old King James put a teacher. The new King James rightly renders it the teacher because the article is present in the original. And so here in our English Bible this morning, are you the teacher? In other words, he's not just saying you're a teacher. 
You're the teacher. We know he's coming representing a group of men. He is a teacher of teachers. Are you the teacher of teachers? Are you the most reverend professor, doctor, and you don't understand these things? You don't know what the Old Testament teaches about the birth from above? Now, Jesus' question implies that he could have understood this, that he should have understood this. Are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? Now, remember, up until this time, Jesus has not told Nicodemus how to get the new birth. He's just been speaking of the necessity of the new birth. But now he's going to explain to him how to get the new birth. And you and I need to be able to explain to people that we love and care and whom God brings into our pathway how they can be born again. Now, you can't tell them what you don't know. And if you're not born again, the first step is for you to have that birth. And so now Nicodemus is silenced. It goes from a dialogue to a monologue. Notice what Jesus says in verse 11. Truly, truly, literally, amen, amen, or the old English renders it, verily, verily, whenever you see those two words put together, it's like, what I'm about to say is super important, so don't miss it. This is the third time he uses that expression in this conversation. Truly, truly, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. I hope you notice in the Greek New Testament, and it's brought out in our English Bibles, they they could have technically added another we and be correct. All four verbs are in the first person plural. We speak, we know, we testify, we have seen, and they do not accept our testimony testimony. Who's the we here? Jesus is identifying himself with the prophets of the Old Testament. All you have to do is read Ezekiel or say Jeremiah, where those are two major prophets who speak about the birth from above, who speak of the new covenant where God would put his spirit within us. We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen in you, and you is in the plural. And that, by the way, is one of the blessings of the Old English because they have two words for you. They have a plural you and a singular you. It doesn't come out in our English Bible, but the context, because he is coming to represent a group of people, we know that you have come from God. You is plural, meaning you people, you Nicodemus and the Jews at large, do not accept our testimony. Then Jesus tells him in verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is referring to this conversation he's just had with him. Nicodemus, up until this point, you cannot understand this truth for what reason? Because you don't believe the truth. The omniscient Son of God is able to read Nicodemus' heart And he says, you don't believe. Now, people often, I've heard it preached before that this is the record of Nicodemus' conversion. It is not. It is the first step in in his conversion, but he's not converted yet. He's still in unbelief. You do not believe. But thank God, some three years later, we see that he came to genuine faith, and someday you'll meet him in the kingdom. You can read John 19, but right now he's in unbelief, which, by the way, is the reason people are lost. In verse 11, Christ tells Nicodemus that he and the people he represents 
would not accept, would not receive his testimony or witness because they do not believe. And it's so it's unbelief that is the father and the root of all sins. So don't confuse knowing all this theology with genuine conversion because a person can know a lot of theology and not necessarily have believed. You don't get it because you don't believe it. And really, it doesn't matter how well-educated you are, whether you have a PhD in the Scriptures that we would say Nicodemus, in essence, had, or whether you are a stark Aborigine native. God has spoken to everyone in some way through both the creation and the conscience. In the opening chapter in John 1 in the prologue, Jesus is described as the true light who enlightens every man. But as we'll see in a moment, the problem is that men love the darkness rather than the light. And so it's not an intellectual problem in the end. It is in the beginning. We're all born in ignorance. We just don't automatically know the gospel. We have to somewhere along the way hear it. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, will be saved. But how can you call upon him in whom you have not heard? And how will you hear without a preacher? And the preacher has to go and tell you this good news, the Scripture says. And the preacher there in Romans 10 is not just a professional like me, but all of us. We're all called preachers. We're all called priests. We all share a number of terms together as God's people. So it's unbelief that begets ignorance. And if a person remains in ignorance, it's typically rooted in his unbelief. And it's a principle that runs all the way through Scripture, that a person can stay in ignorance because God refuses to give them any more revelation about himself because they will not respond to the revelation that he has already given them. So it is unbelief towards the truth that keeps a man in darkness. If I told you earthly things, verse 12, and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So while the new birth is from above, in one sense it's earthly, and that it takes place on this earth, and its effects can be seen on this earth. I was born again when I was 18 years old. It took place in a classroom. It had nothing to do with the school I was attending, but that was just the location where I believed on Christ and was born again. So, Nicodemus, if you can't believe the simpler things that you should be expected to believe as a teacher of Israel, and if you can't experience right now a new birth that takes place on earth, then how can I give you more profound, complicated truths that are heavenly in nature? Some teacher you are, Nicodemus. And so, Nicodemus needs to come to grips with where he really is. Nicodemus, if you don't understand this earthly miracle from above, you're not going to be able to really understand and perceive greater truth. Look at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Why can Jesus speak about heaven with such authority? Because of what he says here. He ascended into heaven. I mean, excuse me, no one has ascended into heaven and come back. He descends from heaven. Now, I know you meet these people, and we'll talk about it a little bit in our series on heaven from the Revelation. They say, well, I died on the operating table, and I went to heaven, and, you know, God and I had this conversation. There are whole books written on it, and 
magazine articles written habitually in magazines like Charisma that has recently slandered a great man of God in our nation, John MacArthur. But you see, they put everything with experience above everything else. Just because you've experienced something doesn't make it legitimate. Everything that is spiritual is not spiritually true. And it may be that your heart and lungs stopped on an operating table and you had a lack of oxygen to the brain and maybe you thought something in a dream, but you didn't die and go to heaven. The Scripture is clear. It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. James is very, very clear that death does not take place, he says, until the spirit leaves the body. And when the spirit leaves the body, it never comes back into that body. So it has nothing to do with the physiological signs on an operating table. Death happens when the spirit leaves. And when the spirit leaves, it either departs, absent from the body, present with the Lord, or absent from the body, present in Hades. But some people have had this experience, and they're convinced it's true. Again, it may be oxygen deprivation. Sometimes it's greed, and we'll speak of this recently of a book that was done. And then the guy came out and said, I was a big fraud and a fake, but I made millions of bucks (laughs) on the backs of naive evangelicals who no longer know their Bibles. Or sometimes it's just downright deception. The devil is a deceiver. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. No one can speak with such authority except Jesus because he left heaven and took on our humanity. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're not celebrating next month Christ's birthday We're celebrating his earth day. The one with no beginning or end leaves the presence of the Father, and he takes on our humanity. And so you need to make sure that you've had this birth from above, that you have been born again. And so Jesus is going to relate the new birth to an illustration. He wants Nicodemus to get this. And so here's a man who's been ingrained in the Scriptures for probably decades, And so he can speak to him in one way that he cannot speak, say, to the woman at the well in the next chapter as it's recorded. But before I get to the illustration, let me ask you this question. On a scale of zero to 100, how sure are you that you're born again? Did you mark out an answer there on the paper? I hope you did, member and visitor alike. Now, just saying you're 100% sure you're born again doesn't make it true. Jesus speaks in the end of a great multitude of people who are absolutely convinced they are going to heaven, and he'll say to them, I never knew you, depart from me. And so the second question is equally important there on your note-taking outline. If you were to stand before God and God asked you, if being born again is necessary to enter my kingdom, tell me how to be born again. I mean, God won't ask you that question, but if he were to ask you that question, what would you say? Hold your answer. Put it out in the margin of your mind. Don't lose it. So illustrations are like windows that let light in. 
And so Jesus gives this illustration. Look at verse 14. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must, circle that word must, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now, the illustration comes from the Torah, specifically the book of Numbers, the 21st chapter, a portion of Scripture that Nicodemus was well studied in. Let me read it to you. The uh, context is when the Israelites had left Egypt, they're out in the wilderness, and they begin to bellyache over the provisions that God had given them. And so they go to God's man, and they whine, and they complain. We're told, Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4, then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For he says, there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food, or bread you could render it. And the Lord sent fiery serpents, poisonous snakes, among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you intercede or pray with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded or prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard or a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent. He set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So God sent these poisonous snakes amongst the people. Remember, 600,000 men leave Egypt, excluding women and children. So there's some 2 million people that are out here in the wilderness. And they're being bitten with a bite of judgment and discipline. And they are beginning to drop like flies. Some are still sick. They haven't died yet. They're coming to Moses. Remember, this is at a time in human history when not everyone is a priest. The promise of the new covenant is every believer is a priest. Now, I may not have a collar around my neck, and you might not either, but if you know Jesus is your Savior, the Bible plainly says that every born-again, blood-bought child of God is a priest of God. You don't have to go through a Moses anymore. You can go directly to the Son who intercedes with the Father as the Spirit prompts you to pray. But this is a picture of the truth that we see in Scripture, and that these people are bitten with death for the wages of sin is death. And so they crowd to Moses for mercy, for deliverance. And the remedy is God says, make a serpent out of bronze in the likeness that bit the people. And so he makes a serpent and he sets it on a pole. Why on the pole? Because God wants any Israelite to be able to see it. God is not willing that any should perish, and God doesn't want to hide his deliverance. He wants to offer it to people, and the same is true on this side of the cross. He sets it high on a pole so that anyone who looks can live. And so the symbol of healing in medicine today is that of a snake around a pole. You see it on the back of most ambulances. Some would say, well, that came from the goddess Asclepius. No, he got it from Moses centuries before. It's just like the flood story. There are over 250 flood stories in the world, but the original flood story comes from Scripture. And this original picture of healing comes from God Almighty and His Holy Scripture. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. You see, my friends, when you choose to sin against God, and we've all chosen to do that, Romans 5 says that when Adam sinned, all sinned, we've been bitten by a different serpent. We've been bitten by the devil, so to speak, and now we have a sin nature. In sin did my mother conceive me, King David will pen. And so because of that, we are fallen, we are sinful, we are blinded to the things of God. And if you want to see the things of God, understand them, and enter into God's kingdom, you have to have a cure for eternal death, and it is eternal life. But the analogy here is clear, and you need to know this analogy if you know Christ. Just as, even so, just as the serpent was lifted high on a pole, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, there is nothing the Israelis could do to redeem themselves. The venom was in their bloodstream. They were dropping here, there, and everywhere, and given enough time, they would all die. Their only hope was God. Their only hope was that God would somehow intervene. Now, you see that word must? Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why must he be lifted up? Because unless Jesus is lifted up, there's no hope for you or for me. Let me give you three reasons why he must be lifted up. Reason number one is your good deeds can never remove the stain of sin. Your sinful acts, Isaiah says, have alienated you from your God. Your sins have caused him to reject you, and he does not listen to your prayers. Your sin makes you unpresentable before God who is absolutely holy. See, most people think if I do more good than I do bad, that somehow I can get rid of the bad I've done, that God will accept me on that basis. But that's not how the new birth takes place. And you must be born again to enter God's kingdom. If you somehow from this day forward could live a holy life and never sin again, it wouldn't change what you've done back here. And Scripture says, for whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles one point has become guilty of all. That is to say, if you kept every single commandment of God, you broke just one. It's like you broke them all. So reason number one is your good deeds can never remove the stain of sin. Reason number two, your good deeds can never satisfy the penalty of sin. For the wages of sin is death. The soul who sins must die. If you commit some heinous crime and the judge says your crime is worthy of death, you could come up with 10,000 alternatives to the electric chair or to some injection or however they pull it off in the given state or country you're in but it won't satisfy the law if your crime truly, genuinely deserves death. And so God made a statement right at the beginning of time when Abel came on the basis of blood and Cain came on the basis of his own hard work. And God received one offering because he came in faith. Faith is based on revealed truth. And God had revealed already to his parents when they came with their fig leaf religion that their fig leaf religion could never cover their sin and their shame. And so the first death in the universe takes place where God kills animals, plural. He gives them coats of skins and he covers them to teach a lesson that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So all the way through the Old Testament, there are rivers of blood 
that the life is in the blood, and so without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. I'm not ashamed of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is the basis of my salvation, and it will become the basis of yours if you're going to be saved. But reason number three, one given right here, why he must be lifted up, is because God wants to use this as a display that he loves you. Listen, God loves you. He loves you so much that he gave his only son. But the fact that he gave his son does not automatically mean that you're saved by what he did. What Jesus did is sufficient to save anybody, but it's only efficient. It's only good for you by believing, by coming in faith. It was necessary for every snake-bidden Israelite to choose as an act of their will and to look at the raised bronze snake if they were ever going to live. And the implication in Numbers 21 is not everyone looked. And that's why not everyone lived. And I'm sure it was sheer foolishness and craziness to some people that all you need to do is look and I'll immediately be healed. That's what God said. And when you talk about people today needing to look to the one who is raised up on a cross, that that's God's way of solution, they will always peddle their good deeds or something they are trying to do or they haven't done. And it just seems foolishness to them. But look at the comparison. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's a whosoever will gospel. Occasionally someone says to me, well, I grew up in a church. I just recently had a lady to meet the pastor in Bluffton two months ago, and she said, I'm not sure. I'm one of the elect. She said, I grew up in a church that only the elect will be saved. And I said, well, that, that's a half-truth. It is true that only the elect will be saved, but the elect are the whosoever wills and the non-elect are whosoever wants. Anyone in that camp of two million people could look at the raised snake and they would immediately live. And like these Israelites, we have been bitten with the stain of death. And unless we look, we will not live. So the Son of Man be lifted up so that, here's the reason, whoever believes may in Him have eternal life. How plain could it be? And yet we always try to come up with our own devices, our own ways. By the way, how did you answer the second question? Remember, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what you said or what you wrote or what you thought and you wrote out there in the margin of your mind is the starting place as to whether or not you're born again. Now, typically, if I were to collect all the answers that people wrote down, people would give one of four responses as listed here. Some would say, I don't know. That's why I came. And that's a good reason to come. But if someone goes through this whole life, I don't know, we'll see in a moment the reason is because they don't want to know. But if someone says, I don't know how to be born again, then the Scripture would say they're still lost. Oh, but I got baptized, and I shook a preacher's hand, and, and I prayed a prayer, and, but I don't know how to be born again. 
Well, you went through some religious acts, but it wasn't conversion, at least not based on what the Scripture reveals, and that's all that matters. Some of us may have given an answer of good works. Well, you're born again by, you know, turning over a new leaf in life and trying your hardest to live for the Lord. And we just saw, no, good works cannot remove the stain of sin, nor can good works satisfy the penalty of sin, which is death. Some people will bring God into the equation. They'll say, well, I believe in God. Well, so doesn't everyone. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Everyone knows God, Romans 1 teaches. That's why God devotes one half of one verse to atheism and all the Scripture. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Now, a man may tell you he's an agnostic and, or he's an atheist and he's got an ego a mile wide, and I hate it when these Christians say, well, I was an agnostic or I was an atheist, and they weren't. Don't say what God says was not true of you. Now, you might have gone around and said, I was an agnostic or an atheist, but you weren't. Every man knows there is a God. The Bible is crystal clear, no matter what they say. Well, I believe in God. Well, so do the demons. Or we might get more specific. I recite the Apostles' Creed every week. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, was dead, buried, was raised on the third day. Well, so don't the demons. Or some people will say, well, I really believe that that he died, was buried, and was raised. And on top of that, I'm trying to do these things. And between what Jesus did and I do, I'll get eternal life. And the Bible would say no. There's a book in the New Testament where it teaches if you add even a single work to the finished work, you are inv invalidating the cross. For if righteousness comes through the law, Paul will say, then Christ died for no reason. He died in vain. His death was meaningless if you could contribute in some way to the finished work on the cross. No, the Bible is clear. Your faith in Christ alone will save. Now, again, even that is misunderstood because people will say, well, I have faith. You know, we were in a jam and we prayed for God's help and God answered our prayer. You see, I have faith. Well, God's not speaking of faith in the sense of trusting Him to meet your daily needs or to pay the bills this month or to heal a sick family member. Those are things we want to look to God for, but that's not the kind of faith that will save you. God is asking you to believe Him for something He's already accomplished, that when Jesus died, was buried, and was raised, that that is sufficient to save you. There's only one answer that would express someone who's born again, and it's the fourth one. And again, I'm saying that on the authority of the Bible and not my own thoughts. It's faith in Christ alone. You see those, watch those slogans across this window up here, sola gratia, that's grace alone. On the far right, sola fide, that's faith alone. Solus Christos, that's Christ alone. Sola scriptura, because the Bible alone has to be our final authority. Sola, soli Deo, gloria to the glory of God alone. See, that's what the Protestant Reformation was about, because Roman Catholicism was the third equation. Faith in Jesus plus the good things you do will give you salvation. That's why in Roman Catholicism, no one can know they're saved. It's called the sin of presumption. I'm not trying to be mean. I was raised Roman Catholic, studied under the Jesuit order, the teaching order of the Roman Catholic Church, appointed personally by the Pope. But there are many Protestants who are in the same camp today. Jesus plus. He didn't do it all. It's a Jesus plus plan. 
You see, the problem with that is you don't have to own your sin. You can always say, I'm partly good enough by the things I've done. And to folks who thought that way, Jesus said, you'll never enter God's kingdom. It's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. No, you must put your faith in Christ alone. And when you do, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God counts him with his righteousness. See, righteousness is not, is not infused to you like in Roman Catholicism. In Roman Catholicism, I was in the hospital recently watching this guy, and he had this, you know, little... Uh, pole and all these bags hanging off of it, and he was walking around, and, you know, he was getting the medicine through, the, through that uh, pole, through those bags hanging on the pole. That's a good picture of Roman Catholicism. It's an infused righteousness. You get grace through the sacramental system, and then that grace will help you to do good works, and if you do enough good works, then you won't spend as much time in purgatory, because everyone goes to purgatory. Again, a doctrine not found anywhere in Scripture. You've got to decide. You're going to believe what the Bible says or what some church teaches. Listen, there's just as many heretical teachings in Protestant churches today. There are preachers in this town who will perform gay marriages. Now, they can do that, and they can say that God sanctions it, but he doesn't. They're lying to you. It comes in issue. Is this book sola scriptura, Latin for scripture alone? Is that our authority? No, righteousness is not infused. It's credited, it's imputed righteousness, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. And the moment you are counted as righteous, and so in the New Testament, every believer is called a saint, the newest and the oldest, the most consistent and least consistent, every believer in the New Testament is called a saint. When you're in Christ, you're a new creation, and your life begins to change, and so good works are merely the fruit of salvation. So how did you answer? If you gave one of the first three answers, the Bible would say you're not born again. I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Am I judging a Mormon to say he's not a Christian? Of course not, because he denies the deity of Jesus. He says Jesus is just a man. Jesus said, if you believe I'm just a man, you're going to die in your sin. They have to decide. That's not a judgment I'm making. That's a judgment Scripture is making. By the way, 700 years later, this little brazen snake is seen again. Let me read it to you. It's in 2 Kings. Now it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. And he removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. Those were idols. He also broke in pieces, listen, the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the son of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan, meaning a piece of brass. They had taken this object that God said, all I want you to do is believe what I say. Moses is going to set it up on a pole. And if you look and do what I say, you believe in my provision, you will instantly be healed. 
And again, the snake is in the likeness of the one that bit them. And Jesus, who knew no sin, becomes sin on our behalf as he is raised up on a cross. But here they are 700 years ago, and that snake becomes an idol that they're worshiping at. Unless we be too sanctimonious, people today are not that much different. They cling to their church membership or to their christening, to their profession of faith, to their confirmation, to last rites, to something other than Christ alone to save them. All right, now that's the greatest truths that are presented to Nicodemus. That brings us now to the greatest text, which is, of course, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Without question, this is the most loved, the most memorized, the most preached, the best-known verse in all of Holy Scripture. Now, as to whether these are John's words that are given here as a commentary or whether Jesus' words, we can run that debate. And there are red-letter editions of the Bible. The first red-letter edition of the Bible came out in 1899, and it was actually pretty controversial when Louis Kloppish put it out because he took all the words of Jesus and put them in red letters. And so some of you may have a Bible this morning, and John 3.16 is in red letter, and some of it, you're in a black letter. Well, you know, who said it? Does it matter? No. And are the red letters more inspired than the black letters? Not at all. It's all equally inspired and authoritatively the Word of God. And I could give an argument both ways. John wrote this or Jesus said it. It doesn't change a thing. In either case, for God so loved the world. In other words, you see the very first word, for, for God. What is that doing? It's connecting it to the prior verse. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Let me explain. It's the Greek word gar. Let me give some light on this. For God so loved the world. He wants us to understand the relationship between that Old Testament illustration and what Jesus is going to accomplish for us. And by the way, the world here means world. It means exactly that. Now, there are some of my Christian brethren who believe in what they call a limited redemption, a limited atonement. Sometimes they call it a particular atonement. And they say, well, Jesus didn't die for all men, but he died just for the elect. Look, I can look at anyone in the eye without giving some kind of fancy gymnastical language. Well, Jesus died just for those who will repent and believe. And that's what they're doing. When you hear that kind of language, you're listening to someone who doesn't believe Jesus died for all. I can look at anyone in the face and say, Christ died for you. He gave himself for you. And when you come to the last verse in this chapter, you discover that Christ's death is not only the basis of salvation, it's also the basis of condemnation. No one will be able to say, well, Lord, even if I wanted to believe, you didn't die for me, so I couldn't believe. No, he died for all, and the world means world. The scope of the atonement is unlimited. But they'll say, but what about John chapter 10 and verse 11? Let me read it to you. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Well, this verse is not contradictory. It's not teaching that Jesus just died for the sheep. 
This is not dealing with the extent of the atonement. It's dealing with the intent of the atonement. Jesus knew not everyone would believe. Why? Because they choose not to believe. And so as he goes to the cross, knowing that some people will mock him even at the foot of the cross, and they will die mocking him, it's those who will believe. For the joy set before him, for those who will call upon him in faith, that he lays his life down. But the scripture is clear that he gave himself. For God so loved the world. Now, wait a minute. For God so loved the world. How is the death of Jesus an expression of the love of the Father? I mean, Phil Donahue years ago, he was a famous American talk show host. And he had Jerry Falwell Sr. on, and he said, well, you know, if God the Father really loved the world, he would have stepped out of heaven and he would have died. So how is Jesus dying on the cross a demonstration of the Father's love? It would be no demonstration at all if Jesus were only a man. It would be no demonstration at all if he were only a man. But if Jesus is God as he claims, and as the Scriptures prophesied concerning the Messiah, then it's a full demonstration of God loving us. Because the members of the Godhead are inseparable. Jesus will say in John 14, 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians that God the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So in God giving Christ, he was giving himself. The members of the Godhead are absolutely inseparable. It's a full demonstration of Christ's love, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a demonstration of the Father's love, and we might add the Holy Spirit's love. That's another sermonette, because in giving of his Son, he was giving of himself. D.L. Moody was in England doing one of his crusades, and he met a young budding English preacher by the name of Henry Morehouse. And this particular Englishman was drawn to Moody as an evangelist. Morehouse asked Moody, he said, if I'm ever in America, do you think I could preach in your church? Of course, you didn't jump in an airplane in those days. Very few people ever made the trip across the water. And he thought, yeah, if you are in Chicago, you can preach in my church, thinking he'd never have to fulfill that promise. Well, Henry Morehouse showed up one day at his doorstep, and he thought, well, okay, I'll let you preach. And he thought if he botched it, he could fix it up in the evening service. And so Henry Morehouse got up and he preached on this text, John 3, 16. And he preached it with such passion and clarity that Moody invited him to preach that night and the next night, and he preached for the next week on John 3, 16. By the way, if you've never done this, this might be a little helpful exercise this week. Take John 3, 16. And just emphasize 10 key places in it. For God so loved the world. For God so loved. For God so loved the world. And go through the whole verse, 10 key spots. It'll be a real blessing to you because it will cause you to meditate and really think about what's being said. So Henry Morehouse became the man who moved the man who moved millions. He really moved Moody. And God used him in a powerful way that week. And on the final night of the series, he said this. 
Morehouse wrote, I have been trying to tell you how much God loves you, but suppose I could borrow Jacob's ladder and ascend to heaven and walk on those streets of gold. And suppose I could find Gabriel, the herald angel, who stands in the presence of God and ask him, tell me, Gabriel, how much does God love the world? He would say, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That's how much. God loves the world. Now look at verse 16 again. He's referred to here as the only begotten son. Some of your translations say the uniquely begotten son, the one and only son. It's the Greek word monogene. It translates into English with two words. It's used only of one other person in all of the Bible, of Isaac. Isaac is called the monogene, the uniquely begotten son of Abraham, because it was a miracle baby. Abraham was 100, she was 90. Both of their bodies were as good as dead, and God rejuvenates their bodies and gives them the ability to conceive a baby. Well, Jesus is a miracle baby, of course, in an entirely different realm. The one who had no beginning or end became a man. He left heaven. He is uniquely begotten. Gabriel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. God was going to be prophesied that he would become a man. And so he was virgin born and it was necessary that he be virgin conceived. Because if he had a human father, he would have taken on the sin nature. But God cannot associate himself with sin in that respect. And so God became a man, and so he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And so this verse says, for God so loved the world, he gave his uniquely, his only begotten son. And it reveals a truth, both negative and positive, if you think about it, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have today, right now, present tense, eternal life. Negatively, he says, you will not perish. And by perish, he does not mean be annihilated. When the Bible uses the word, it speaks of a conscious awareness and an eternal place called hell. But positively, when you believe, you receive eternal life, an unbroken relationship with the living God. Now, that brings us finally to the world's greatest text. Beyond the greatest truths and the greatest Texts, there is now the world's greatest test, the world's greatest test. Now, let's read verse 17. I'm almost finished. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Circle that word, send. You see, you and I, like Nicodemus, were merely born into this world. Jesus was sent into the world. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. What we celebrate at Christmas is the incarnation of the Son. The prophet said, a child will be born into us. Wonderful. What's the child's name? The child shall be named Mighty God. The virgin-born Son of God is going to take on our humanity, and his name will be called Mighty God. And so at the moment of conception, he's God and man, truly God, truly man, undiminished deity, sinless humanity, inseparably combined into one person, Christ the Lord. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. but that the world might be saved through him. Now, you see that word judge? It carries the idea of condemnation. And the whole reason Jesus came into this world was not to condemn you, but to save you. Why didn't he have to condemn you? Look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. 
he who does not believe is judged already. Circle that word already because it totally dismantles the way some of you are thinking this morning. Stay with me. The devil wants some of you to stray right now because he wants to keep you in his kingdom. Already. You are judged already. There comes a point in your life when you are accountable to God. The Scripture does not give a specific age. But when you reach that age of accountability, God says you are judged already, condemned already, written across your forehead is guilty. There's not some future evaluation where God determines based on your human merit whether or not you're condemned or not condemned. No, you're already on the broad road that leads to destruction. You're already condemned already. By nature, Paul will say in Ephesians, we are children of wrath. In verse 36, he will say, the one who believes has life. The one who does not believe, the wrath of God is living. It's abiding on him right now. You are already under the condemnation of God, and this is why we need to flee to Christ. And so when you flee to Christ, you take on a new identification, but you have to flee to Christ. You have to choose whether or not you will come to him. Our position is something like a man who is in prison, who is to be executed, but the president offers him a pardon. And the pardon is good news if the man will receive the pardon. But if he rejects the pardon, then he will face the condemnation that his crime will bring. Well, God says, you are judged already, but the God who set the penalty said, I'll pay the penalty so that you can escape the penalty. But if you choose not to believe, then you will experience a just condemnation. Recently, there was a man who was told that if he was given a certain particular drug, he could be cured from his disease, but he refused to take the drug. And so he had no one to blame but himself. And if you die and are condemned eternally, you will have no one to blame but yourself. We have already been tried, already been found wanting. That's the truth, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So God doesn't take your unbelief lightly. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Now, what does light do? I woke up in the middle of the night, and I was looking for something. It was so dark, these blackout curtains, and so I, I turned on my phone because I had to see. It dispels the darkness so you can see. And God sheds light into your heart, but you can close off that light and, and, and ignore and repel that light, or you can respond to the light that God has given you. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. But men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. You see that word love? Sometimes people say, well, agape love is God's love. Well, that's a half-truth. Agapao is a verb. We anglicize it. We call it agape love. But sometimes agape love is man's love. The same word used here, they love, their e they love the darkness, is the same word that's used in John 3.16 when it says, for God so loved the world. They choose darkness, sin, over light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. So don't buy into the simplistic explanation that agape love is God's love because sometimes it is man's willful love to choose against the living God. But the Son came into the world 
that he might explain the Father as John 1 teaches. The light has come into the world and he has explained him. He has literally exegeted him. God put a face on God the Father so that we could understand what he was like. Now look at verse 21, or verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? For fear that his deeds will be exposed. Why do they hate the light? And by the way, as we move into the last of the last days, the, the camps are becoming more and more divided. The problem that's going on in America is not political. It's moral. There are two moral camps. Some who are born again, who have influenced unborn again people, but enough where they've salted and lighted them enough where they know that certain things like taking a baby's life on their birthday, that that is murder. They get that. They get that homosexuality is a perversion. They get that. It's unnatural. They understand that. And then you got this camp over here because they love the darkness. Man, they, they don't like you. They hate you. And there'll probably come a time when they will literally physically persecute you. They love their deeds. And so they don't want to come to the light. Why? Because they want to rationalize their sin. Oh, this is a woman's right to her own body. Well, a woman has a right over her own body. But the baby ain't her body. It's a separate entity. That's what Scripture teaches. So there are camps are dividing, and people who, who love darkness, they don't want to come to the light because they have to admission, admit homosexuality is sin, premarital sex is sin, extramarital sex is sin, drunkenness is sin, lying is sin, cheating is sin. You have to come to grips with your sin and call it for what God says it is. And so unless you change your mind or repent, you'll perish. Look at verse 21, the contrast. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Two contrasts. The person in verses 19 and 20, they love the darkness, they do evil, and they hate the light. Whereas the person here in verse 21, who's twice born, he practices the truth, and so he has no problem coming to the light. Now, some people are saying, well, I'm not immoral. I'm a decent person. I don't practice evil, but neither are they practicing the truth. I'm here on this Lord's day, not because I'm being paid to be here, but I'm here because this is the Lord's day. And ever before I was a pastor, every Sunday I was with God's people. Why? Because he tells me on the first day of the week, I'm supposed to assemble with his people. Some people don't practice the truth. They talk about the things they don't do but they don't give any evidence to the things that they should be doing, which a second birth brings about. God will demonstrate that he has wrought something into my heart as my life changes. And if my life doesn't change, you can go around and say you're born again all you want, but you're deceived. So let me ask two questions in application. Number one, where are you looking today? Where are you looking are you looking to yourself to save yourself? Maybe to some priest or some church or baptism or a confessional or confirmation? Where are you looking? Are you looking to Christ 
Because here's your only hope. Augustus Top Lady wrote in 1776 these words to a hymn he penned, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul to the fountain I fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Where are you looking? God brought some of you today because he wants you to look at Christ. You can be saved today. Today is the day of salvation. When you hear the message, God warns, don't harden your heart. You know what the temptation will be for some of us? I don't want to admit I'm not a Christian. That's just old, ugly pride, and Satan will send some of his fiery darts in that direction so that you dig in your heels and in your pride, you'll say, I'm not going to admit I'm not a Christian. I didn't even give close to the right answers. Well, you're not a Christian. That's what God says, but that's why he brought you here. So you have to decide, where will you look? And then we might just ask, where are you pointing people? I mean, if you've received the free gift of eternal life, it's good news. And you should tell people. And you can get the credit for what Jesus did if you will come today in faith. And faith is just believing what God said. Each and every Israelite had to choose what seemed absolutely incredibly insane and supernatural to just look at a raised serpent and he would instantly live. And you have to choose whether you're going to believe that in reference to the cross. That's what faith is. It's taking God at his word. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Don't leave unless it's an absolute emergency. Maybe God brought you here today because he wants to save you. And God cannot lie. He keeps all of his promises. We exercise faith every day. We believe what God promises, but not only do we believe what God promises, we believe what man promises. Think about it. Some of you, when you sat in that chair... You didn't examine it. You just, in faith, sat in it. You trusted it was good. We believe people every day. You've never seen the money in the bank that your bank says you have, but you believe it in faith. And God is asking you to believe his word because man's word is often untrue and inconsistent, but God always tells the truth. And God says, if you will call upon Jesus, he'll save you right now for all of eternity. But you have to choose whether or not you will believe. Will you say there in the quietness of your own heart, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I don't deserve to go to heaven. But you told me I must be born again to enter God's kingdom. And I want to be born again. And you said I can be born again if I would look to your death and resurrection. So I thank you that you died in my place, taking my punishment. And I call upon you in faith, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you've saved me, I will make it public and confess you before men. Now, Father, I thank you if someone this morning here or in one of our campuses crossed that line Give them the courage to make it public this morning. And for those of us maybe who have done this decades ago, 
May we, with the Apostle Paul, say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. May our lips be no longer sealed, but open in praise and in testimony and in witness. Father, some of us have lost family members, and we've not shared with them. And some of us inwardly fear, Father, that if the phone call came today, that they were dead, that we would know they were lost. God, we have neighbors, friends at work. Help us not to fear what people think of us. Lord Jesus, you said not to fear those who can at most kill the body. Help us to fear you, God, who someday will kill both body and soul in hell of every unbeliever. Help us to be good stewards of the gospel, not just on friend day, but every week of the year. We love you, our Father. We thank you for writing our names in the Lamb's Book of Life. Help us in this new week that as we go, that we might make disciples. We ask it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And maybe this morning you said, Jesus, save me. You say, what do I do next? You make it public. That's why we have an invitation. And you can leave your seat and come to this front row. And we won't ask you to give a speech or anything, but you're coming this morning. We'll be saying, I'm not ashamed to say that Jesus has saved me. And then God asks us to be baptized as an emblem of our salvation. It pictures the death, burial, and resurrection that we've put our faith where God put our sin on the cross and that this one who died was buried but raised, resurrected to life. Maybe you're here and you need a church home. This invitation is for you as well. You might be in Bluffton or in Aiken or you're in Grays this morning. You have a decision you need to make that needs to have a public expression I'm going to invite you right where you are to get up and to leave your seat as we begin to sing and meet me or that person in that building down front. Matt, lead us. Would you come? Come right now.